You're listening to Season 5 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 5.3, Falling In, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and someday every advanced piece of technology you covet will just be a hilariously retro gadget in an old movie. And I'm Nina, new to War in the Pocket, and I may never recover from finding out that Al's camcorder records to floppy disk. Floppy? It looks pretty rigid to me. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Oh, ho, ho. There are people listening to this podcast right now who don't get any of that <laughs> or why it's funny. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 609 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Mecca Jackie, Stan Hansen, Eric P., Kapool is Kapool, Thomas, Baron Black, Dakota E., and John. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Before getting to the main subject of this week, we're going to take a brief pause to talk about an even briefer bit of Gundam ephemera, the roughly one minute long promotional video, All That Gundam. I was a little bit puzzled about when we ought to watch this video and talk about it. Uh, despite searching in both English and Japanese, I was never able to find a date of publication more specific than just 1989. And in the course of my research on the question, uh, I came up with three different data points, each of which suggests a uh, different possible release date, either before, during, or after War in the Pocket. As anybody who has watched All That Gundam knows, it ends with uh, some text on the screen promoting the upcoming release of 0080 coming soon, next Gundam 0080, War in the Pocket. And that does suggest that it came out before the 0080 OVAs started releasing. However, it was made specifically for the 10th anniversary of Gundam, which, by the way, we have reached the 10th anniversary of Gundam. Go us. <laughs> anyway, the 10th anniversary of Gundam fell between episodes one and two of 0080. So it's possible that it was made for an event which took place on or around the 10th anniversary. I don't think that that necessarily conflicts with the text on the screen at the end. You could easily imagine that you would still be promoting the next Gundam, even if the first episode had been out for a couple of days at that point. The third data point is that all that Gundam was eventually released on a bonus Laserdisc, uh, and I think also VHS, which was only available to people who had purchased all six volumes of War in the Pocket. 
And in addition to all that Gundam, that Laserdisc included some music videos, which featured scenes from the last episodes of War in the Pocket. So while I wasn't able to find a date for the release of that disc, it stands to reason that it would have been towards the end or at the end or even after the end of 0080's uh, release schedule. So with no way of knowing exactly when this thing came out, we chose to talk about it on the 10th anniversary, which falls in between episodes one and two of 0080. So we're going to talk about it now. Uh, we have watched it. It's just over a minute long. Nina, what did you think? Um, it feels like promotional footage. <laughs> it's like slick enough. It's fine, but it's not mind blowing or amazing or mm -hmm. anything. It is really funny to see mobile suits from first Gundam, Zeta, double Zeta, and Char's counterattack and 0080 all done in the same style drawn in the same style, animated in the same style. It does make the older mobile suits feel ever so slightly off. Mm. Mm hmm. I actually turned to Tom at one point and I was like, wait, there were a couple of mobile suits in there that weren't Gundams, but looked very familiar. But I don't know if I saw them in some side thing. Like I had to ask him what they were. Yeah. The designs have been kind of um, smoothed out. Some of the wonky weirdness of their proportions from their original shows has been ironed out. The ones I didn't recognize were Psycho Gundams, by the way. You know, the Psycho Gundams, when they show up in Zeta and Double Zeta, are these hulking, monstrous, kind of ungainly mobile suits. And in their brief appearances in all that Gundam, like the original Gundam from First Gundam, like the Mark II, like the Zeta, they've all been made sort of slick and clean. And was that Chris piloting a mobile suit that has not yet been named? <gasps> Some sort of Gundam? I'm so surprised. I mean, that hasn't come up in the show yet. I suppose it could have gone either way. Like, it could have been her or Bernie. But if, there has to be a Gundam, obviously. Obviously, there's a Gundam. Well, maybe it's going to be Al. Mm. <laughs> As far as the people who were actually responsible for making this, uh, at least according to the credits, there was a team of four animators, one director, and one guy in charge of music. The music was by Kenji Kawai, who is going to go on in the future to do music for a bunch of the SD shorts, and is also going to do music for Gundam 00. The animators, for the most part, worked on Double Zeta, so it's interesting to see them working in this different style and presumably given a lot more time <laughs> to get it right. But this is what they could have done on Double Zeta had they really wanted to. The overall director was Morikawa Shigeru, who was most active in the mid-2000s under the name Ko Yu. He directed a whole bunch of shows, but they've all sort of proven to be forgettable. Like, I had to look at the list and I only barely remembered that half of them existed. Stuff like the Nuns with Guns comedy Chrono Crusade or the Harame Rondo of Princesses. Yeah, I have never heard of either of those. Looking at the key art, it all feels very, yep, mid-2000s anime. Animators gotta get paid. There is nothing wrong with turning out pretty okay work on a regular basis. I think probably the two most interesting things about all that Gundam are 
one, that they're going to keep doing this. They're going to keep doing these special promotional videos for key anniversaries. Uh, and two, that this actually gives us a definitive answer to the question of things like, is the Hyakushiki a Gundam? Anybody who wants to argue about whether X or Y is a Gundam in the first 10 years of the franchise can just look at this short because this is all that Gundam. The definitive list of Gundams. And it's the RX-78-2, the Mark II, the Zeta, the Double Zeta, the two variations of the Psycho Gundam, the New, and the Gundam. Speaking of the Beep Gundam, let's get back to War in the Pocket. This week we are covering Poketo no Naka no Senso Episode 2, Chairo no Hitomi ni Utsuru Mono, or War in the Pocket Episode 2, Reflections in a Brown Eye. Storyboards for this episode were made by Sato Junichi, under the pseudonym Hadame Kiichi, the same one he used when drawing storyboards on a couple episodes of Zeta Gundam, and would use again for his Neon Genesis Evangelion and the Big O storyboards. But Sato is better known as the series director for Sailor Moon, and the first 13 episodes of Sailor Moon R, before he was replaced by Ikuhara Kunihiko. The episode director was Yokoyama Hiroyuki, a veteran of Zeta and Double Zeta, the animation director was Kubooka Toshiyuki, who was also the animation director on several installments of the OVA's Gunbuster and Giant Robo. More recently, he was the lead character designer for the original The Idol Master video game. Now, let's hear the recap. Oblivious to any danger, peppers the Xeon soldier with questions. Was he flying the mobile suit? Will he let Al hold his gun? At first, the soldier is silent, seething with embarrassment over the crash. But then he notices Al's camera. He offers to show Al the gun, but it's just a ruse. The soldier snatches the camera and starts watching the footage. He's particularly interested in what Al saw at the spaceport. Before he can watch through all of it, Al tackles him to get the camera back, and they both wind up on the ground. The soldier's name is Bernard Weissman, Bernie, and he finally offers to trade his rank badge for the cassette in the camera. Another Zaku arrives to help Bernie escape, and as he leaves, he asks Al to keep their encounter a secret. Walking back toward the school, Al sees damaged buildings, injured people, crowds gawking or milling around wondering what to do. His friends find him and tell him morning classes were canceled, and they all return to the school for lunch. They aren't even done eating when a classmate bursts into the room to announce that afternoon classes have also been canceled, and the kids erupt into cheers. Home early, Al plays pilot, pinning Bernie's badge to his jacket and tilting back and forth in his desk chair, making mobile suit noises. At a Xeon base on the moon, the remnants of the Special Forces Squadron that attacked the Federation Polar Base meet with one of their superiors. Thanks to the footage Bernie took from Al, they know the cargo is on this Side 6 colony, and they may still be able to capture or destroy it. Bernie is transferred to their squadron and will take part in the mission. While Bernie is meeting his new squadmates and being briefed, Al sits in the principal's office. His grades have gotten worse and worse throughout the year, 
and the principal is going to tell his mother. Al anticipates being grounded for a month, and the threat of it hangs over him all day. That night, he sneaks out of his house. Chris spots him, and he tells her it's for a dare with his friends, but in truth, he goes by himself to the downed Zaku. He plays in it. The weapons have been removed, but there's still a little bit of power, and he falls asleep in the cockpit, staring up at the sky at the edge of the colony. Under cover of a mobile suit battle, Bernie poses as a commercial shuttle pilot caught in the crossfire, complete with a dead co-pilot and shattered windshield. His squad mates are sneaking in by other means and will meet him at the spaceport. The fear in his voice is real when Bernie requests permission to dock, and once inside, he's able to get through without inspection. The documents prepared for him in advance and a cover story from his quick-thinking captain get him past the port officials. Al wakes in the Zaku cockpit, springing up when he realizes he's overslept, that his mother will be furious if she catches him. Running as fast as he can, he's almost hit by a truck while crossing the street. The driver leans out the window to tell him off, and who should it be but Bernie? Al recognizes him immediately and changes his plans. The truck is the first of three identical vehicles, and Al races to catch them at a stoplight laughing as he grabs hold of a railing on the last one and pulls himself onto the step at the back just as it picks up speed. The Xeon soldiers are back. This episode has a different opening than the first one, which did make me wonder if the first was really done as more of a pilot. Because you have that happen sometimes when you have a pilot of a TV show and then, you know, a first season proper and the intro is different. Yeah, I I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to tell you that this opening is what we're going to get for the remaining episodes. But it is the same song. It has the feel of chalk drawings for a lot of it. It Mm -hmm. feels like maybe oil pastels on canvas. A lot of it feels like kid scribbles or graffiti, uh, though some of it feels like maybe it's references to other artwork. <laughs> I can say that I think it is full of references. I actually think um, it's cool because without knowing what it is, you wouldn't recognize what it is. But I think if you... Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it actually references events that happen in the series. Okay. I think it's like children's scribblings of things that are going to happen in later episodes. Cool. That's yeah. really neat. So I think look back on this opening as you watch the show and you'll start to put together what you think the different uh, little mini scenes, the vignettes uh, actually correspond to. As a quick reminder on our timeline, this OVA would have come out a month after that first one. So I am a bit surprised there isn't more of a last time on to bring us up to speed, but they do overlap the stories, more or less. We don't begin exactly where we left off. We begin slightly before, and we see that scene again, though I think it's shortened. It has been. It's been abridged somewhat. So I think this OVA series was not that they ever intended it to go out in theaters as a movie, but that it was planned and structured the way one would structure 
a movie and then produced and sold in these bits. You know, each episode is going to flow directly into the one that follows. I'm not surprised that they didn't have a last time on, because when you think about it, if you're looking at a TV show, it will have been a week since the audience saw the prior episode. But in this case, we're talking about home video. They're assuming that the audience bought the first VHS or Betamax or Laserdisc, and so they could watch it immediately before watching this next episode if they wanted to. I suppose that's even true for a rental. You could just re-rent. If you know the new one is coming out, then the week before or whatever, you go and you rent the the first episode again. Perhaps it even creates an incentive driving those dollars to the rental shops or to purchases of the first episode. Speaking of things that get a person to go out and actually buy one of these tapes, you had mentioned a sense that there was more fan service in this episode, more of those sorts of things in the background that a person watching the show might want to watch again and again and rewind and slow down and freeze frame. Yeah, I suppose I meant more uh, nods to previous Gundam shows so that those hardcore fans have that pointing at the screen moment of, ah, that's... (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing from Um, the thing. I only had two of these. Which to me says there must be a bunch more of them that I missed. But uh, when Bernie is walking with his friend and uh, his friend is sort of teasing him in a slightly frightening way, uh, they're going by a hangar. Mm-hmm. And there's a large blue Nadazaku. <laughs> it's certainly Nadazaku. Under construction. Is that meant to be Rambaral's mobile suit? It is not Rambaral's goof. It's a different mobile suit. Although, given the way the mobile suits for this OVA were designed, um, there's a good chance it started out being an Izubuchi version of the goof that then morphed into a completely new mobile suit over time. But it is absolutely goof-esque. And uh, I would agree that this is classic fan service. Like, this is the sort of thing that somebody like me, who just loves the mobile suits, loves to see. A beautiful, big, background, partially disassembled mobile suit, all the bits and pieces inside. Right, you can see some of the inner workings because all the plating's not on it yet. Yes, yes! And in that same scene, the friend mentions Solomon. Mm -hmm. So we're getting more of these direct links to events, places, uh, relevant information from those first series. Yeah, he mentioned Solomon. I thought this was really interesting. He talks about being sent to Solomon like it's a punishment. Well, and that at whatever time this story takes place in, Solomon is already seen as just like a meat grinder. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, this must be before Solomon actually falls. Right. This is this is useful because even though there are no dates on screen at this point, we can still kind of figure out where in the timeline this must have happened. Because uh, it means probably Odessa has happened. Probably the Federation is preparing for its assault on Solomon, but it hasn't started yet. So we're looking at sometime in mid-December. I also, this just occurred to me as you were saying that, I wonder if... Al's grades can also tell us when in the year they are because he's had three major tests Mm. for each class. Mm -hmm. 
But I think that works for December as well, because if the school year ends in March or April and the new school year is going to begin in April. Yeah, I, I feel like that works. But more things that give us some indicators of time. Mm -hmm. The other thing that felt like possible fan service to me was during the battle outside the colony, there is a red mobile suit zipping around. <laughs> it didn't look like Shars Zaku to me, but that's the only, it's the right color. And so my immediate thought is, wait, hang on. That is a kind of Gelgug. That Gelgug? is a Gelgug Jaeger. <laughs> or Gelgug Jaeger, if you're not being weird about it. Um, <laughs> which is a kind of like elite ace pilot Gelgug version. Uh, so no, that is not supposed to be Char's Gelgoog, um, but it is a Gelgoog and a new varietal of Gelgoog. Did you notice any additional fan service I missed? <laughs> well, um, hmm, that's a good question. I think as a fan, one of my favorite kinds of fan service in Gundam specifically is when we get these like late 80s era restylings of mecha that we've seen before um in space for instance we get these command type gyms which are a uh, a redo i guess of the gyms from first gundam uh they look great i love this era of mecha design i love izubuchi's mecha work so i love seeing the gyms of yore <laughs> re-envisioned for this current era and they do this a ton right everything in this show is getting that treatment and I love seeing the like Xeon fleet. I love seeing those Xeon ships given this glow up treatment. And um, th this applied to the first episode as well. The 360 degree panoramic monitors that mobile suits get from Zeta on are cool and they can be used for really great artistic purposes. But I love that like chunky retro futurist like claustrophobic little cockpit that mobile suits from the one year war era have with their like couple of small tv screen style monitors and it's all analog and i i just love those and i love seeing them again it's good to revisit old friends like that this episode also had what i think might be the first major retcon oh when the Xeon guys are talking about new type usable mobile suits, mm. that wasn't a thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you know, on the edges, it doesn't directly conflict with anything in First Gundam. No, but they certainly were not in First Gundam building mobile suits for new types when they barely understood what new types were and were only just starting to maybe suspect that they were a thing. Yeah, I mean, Xeon had its mobile armors like the Elbath or the Brabro or the Xeong for that matter, but certainly no new type use Gundams in right. first Gundam. So while it makes sense for Xeon to be like, oh, new type use mobile suits, <laughs> It doesn't make sense for the Federation to have one. Uh, I'm so glad you brought this up. <laughs> I feel like I can't really talk about it yet. Oh, no. <laughs> there are so many interesting things to say and discuss about it, but I think we have to wait until later in this show before I can actually talk about them. Well, okay then. All I'm saying is, as usual, without knowing it, you're on the right track. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Clever girl. 
like a velociraptor. Did you catch that this special mission is called Rubicon? I did. I did. <laughs> Tom is much more knowledgeable about this than I am, but if I'm remembering my history correctly, Roman armies were not, they only existed as armies once you passed the Rubicon, any closer to Rome than that, and the army was disbanded. You were not supposed to bring an army any closer so that they could prevent generals from taking over the government. Right. The The Rubicon is a river um, north of Rome in Italy. The Roman Republic delegated the right to command Roman armies, a power that they called Imperium, onto provincial governors. But by law, those governors were forbidden from commanding troops within Italy. To do otherwise was to break the law and forfeit Imperium, effectively declaring yourself in revolt against the Republic, its officers, its laws. The Rubicon then became famous because it was by crossing the Rubicon in 49 BCE that Julius Caesar committed himself fully to the civil war that would eventually see him become dictator for life and which precipitated the series of civil wars that would turn Rome into an empire. So on the one hand, it represents bringing troops and weapons into a place where they are forbidden. And on the other, it just represents the concept of a point of no return, an event horizon. In this case, uh, since they're trying to smuggle a mobile suit into this purportedly neutral colony, I think this is about bringing weapons into a supposedly demilitarized zone. Well, and simply of, of being active combatants, of being soldiers, crossing into an area where there are not meant to be any soldiers of any kind. Mm -hmm. Now, we have uh, met the local garrison forces in the prior episode, and there are Federation gyms defending the exterior of the colony. And we saw Chris's suitcase. We did. We did. So um, maybe not quite so demilitarized as they would like the Xeon forces to believe, but well, there you go. Still a good name for an operation. It's punchy. In the scene where the Xeon officer is giving his orders to uh, Steiner and this group of commandos, um, I couldn't get over how off-model Misha and Garcia are when they're sitting next to each other. They have made <laughs> Misha so big and Garcia so small. Like, And the, the Xeon officer giving all the orders is so broad and his forehead so large like the anatomy in this scene. I thought you were going to bring up the very prominent aviator glasses that he wears and the uh, like unloading and customs official at the port wears mm. as well. Well, we can't talk about sunglasses without our sunglasses consultant, ceramic sunglasses. That just sounded like ceramic sunglasses. <laughs> I don't think those would work very well. That scene is also just oozing with classic, the higher-ups don't understand and keep giving us orders that make no sense and they don't mm -hmm. care what happens mm -hmm. to us energy. And it's all like, there's all this internal politics of like whose fault was it that the Arctic base attack failed? I cannot help but wonder. <laughs> Bernie's friend speculates that he's going to be punished because his very first mission, he loses Zaku. Is this assignment a punishment? I assume yes. I assume yeah. this assignment is a punishment for everyone involved. Yeah. Because when the commander is like, oh, he's an excellent pilot. Take good care of him. 
And then the next shot we get is Bernie talking to his friend and his friend being like, you lost a Zaku on your first try. It's like, oh, this is your excellent pilot. Hmm. Plus, he has only one mission under his belt. He's yeah. completely inexperienced. Maybe he got good simulator scores or something, but it does feel like he is being punished and Steiner is being punished with this assignment. And we'll talk about Bernie some more, but uh, before we get to him, I want to talk about how the captain and Mikhail and Garcia all kind of react to him and interact with him. And it it's certainly not welcoming or comforting <laughs> no. or kind. However, we've just seen these young guys talking about how they're sort of grist for the mill. Mm -hmm. They just lost Andy. Who knows how many other members of their squadron they've lost throughout the war. I strongly believe they're not mean-spirited. They're just uh, heavily calloused, shall we say, by yes. the losses. And like, if he sticks around long enough, they will get attached to him and they'll form some kind of uh, like camaraderie with him. But when he's this new and they're not even sure if he'll survive one mission, it's like, oh, I better not get attached to this kid. Yeah. And some of that comes through when Steiner gives the line, like, we don't have any room here for idiots who get shot by their own side. What they do is incredibly dangerous. And there's no sense in getting to know and learning to like this young kid. There's also a certain amount of not quite black humor, but a kind of nonchalance about death mm -hmm. exhibited by all of these other soldiers that sets up a contrast to Bernie as much younger and relatively new. You know, when they <laughs> they put a dead guy in his co-pilot seat and he's shocked, but he sort of comes around on it. And then they shoot the dead guy through his windshield, which he clearly is thrown by. It's unnerving. And no one bothers to explain to him that they're going to do this. Right. <laughs> it's just this is what they're doing to prepare the ship for this uh, infiltration. And uh, presumably him being kind of rattled actually helps with the uh, the deception. Well, he is uh, when he calls the port to ask to be allowed to dock, he sounds afraid because he is legitimately afraid. Yeah, that ship gets hit a couple of times during that fight. Speaking of that fight, Ooh. there's a continuation of that sense of gore, mm -hmm. mostly in this one because there are recognizable bits of mobile suits flying through space. The first thing that hits Bernie's shuttle is a dismembered arm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when the doors of the port close behind him, a hand drifts by. Mm -hmm. I really like this battle. Um First of all, there's this extremely stark, like, shading on things. Things are either very dark or very brightly lit, and it looks really good. The battle is composed of all of these sort of vignettes where we can't tell who's winning. We can't tell what the pilots are like. There are no focal points among the mobile suits, which could be very confusing and chaotic, could make the battle unwatchable. But the battle has two things that are really important. It has two sort of points that we can latch on to. Um, it has the colony and it has this shuttle that Bernie is in. Uh, and we always know where those two are. We know what the stakes of the fight are for Bernie. 
And so by focusing on the space around those two points, they're able to give us this very chaotic battle without ever losing track of what's important. And that's difficult to do. A lot of times when shows try to do that, they, they can't pull it off. I think this one does. It's very different from the way Gundam has handled battles in the past, because in the past, the battle is always focused on an individual pilot in an individual heroic mobile suit that we know and care about. And it's about, you know, what is the Gundam doing? What is the Zeta Gundam doing in this battle? So like in that first episode where we focus so much on people relative to mobile suits, on Al watching the battle happen, here the battle is happening, but the focus is Bernie. And I think that shows a really important understanding that we like cool battles, us mecha fans, but we don't like them just because of the mobile suits or just because of the flashing lights. You need an emotional core. You need a storyline. You need stakes. And you need a discernible, understandable setting. I'm glad you brought up Al, because this episode expands on an idea that we talked about in the first episode and sets up a bit of a point of comparison for us as that idea gets processed. And it's the relationship between children and violence and the unreality of violence for those kids, because there's such a clear connection between Bernie and Al. Mm, mm-hmm. And so much of how Bernie is characterized feels very young. The substantial difference between these two boys is probably not however many years of age apart they are, which is probably not very many, maybe like six or seven, <laughs> uh, but that the danger is real for Bernie mm -hmm. in a way that it isn't for Al. Mm -hmm. But Bernie has more in common with Al than he does with Steiner, Garcia, or uh, Mikael. Absolutely. The opening scene almost makes Bernie seem angelic with his golden hair and the sunlight streaming behind him. It's like a visitation. It's like a, <laughs> an angel has descended to visit Al. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's a echo of that when Al is lying in bed and he's daydreaming about the Zaku flying away. It's so brightly lit. It's like the, the scene has been overexposed and it flies away and there's this very like beautiful, hopeful, peaceful music playing as it does so. Confronted with an enemy pilot, well, enemy pilot <laughs> and a gun in his face, Al is entirely unafraid. He is peppering this young man with questions. He wants to see his gun. He wants to hold his gun. <laughs> He's taking video footage. At the same time that Bernie is so frustrated or embarrassed that he can't speak. Mm -hmm. And he sits down to wait. This is when he says, don't you have soldiers on this colony? And it's like he's fatalistically, he's given up. He's waiting for the local defense force to come and arrest him. When he nabs the camera, Al just jumps him. <laughs> it's like brothers wrestling. He is just so completely unafraid of this armed person. Mm -hmm. And it's not as if Bernie cuffs him, you know? It's not as if Bernie whacks him over the head or shoves him off like... He's pretty gentle with this kid who is attacking him. <laughs> and like 11 year olds are not tiny. 
Actually, we know Al's height and weight from the principal's school software. (laughs) Um, But yeah, if Bernie had wanted to seriously injure Al, I'm sure he could have. I think if an 11-year-old bit me, I might (laughs) give them a a hard shove. Bernie doesn't have it in him, though. No, he doesn't. Uh, You brought up the fight outside the colony. Out there, we have Bernie sweating, terrified, dodging bits of mobile suit. Inside, Al watches the lights sort of dispassionately, like, oh, there must be a battle going on outside. And he's not afraid, but we are as the audience, because we've seen what those battles can do to colonies. We've Mm -hmm. seen the aftermath that just because it's outside, it doesn't mean the colony is safe. But Al doesn't know that or can't conceptualize it, doesn't worry about it. That's an example of a time where Al and Bernie have very different attitudes going on. But earlier in the show, when Bernie is meeting with the commandos for the first time, he ends the scene by kind of like hunching and shrinking and like making himself as small as possible in his chair because he's so like intimidated by this uh, new mission he's been given and by these tough veteran special forces guys. And then the show cuts to Al in the exact same posture. Shoulders tense and up, arms tight to the side, legs tight together. Head down, eyes up. As tense and small as a person can be sitting in a chair across from an authority figure. But that's that's sort of what I'm getting at, that they have so much in common and then have these very different reactions to violence and danger. So the question becomes, why? If Al is every little boy and Bernie is every teenaged boy, what happens in that intervening time or what experiences happen to a person that change one to the other? Mm -hmm. Well, I will say in this episode, we can see in the way that Al thinks about mobile suits, something of what he yearns for that he is imagining comes with these weapons of war. When he lies on his bed after a terrible day and he dreams of the mobile suit, he's specifically thinking about the one that's flying away into the sky. I think for him, he sees in them a sense of freedom and autonomy, the ability to direct his own life, to do what he wants, to not have to take tests, to not be worried about being grounded. And of course, that's the thing that he thinks is the like the punishment. The bad thing he's scared of is having his freedom and autonomy further reduced. Bernie is old enough to have realized that even the power of a mobile suit, even the autonomy that comes with being an adult, doesn't really equal freedom, especially not under these circumstances. When I talked about the two of them as stand-ins for boys of those ages generally, I could also have been very off base. They could just be very different personalities, very different types. We certainly see in Bernie a precision and a desire to please authority that we do not see any of in (laughs) Al. Uh, It's such a small thing, but the moment when Bernie is waiting outside of the room until 1530 on the dot to go inside. He's supposed to be there at 1530. He Mm -hmm. will announce himself at precisely 1530. Not 1529, not 1531. 
Have you not done that? Is this not a recognizable moment for you? Because I got to say from personal experience, I was a kid very much like Al when I was 11, and I was a kid very much like Bernie when I was 18. This tracks. (laughs) Okay, good to know. I am usually not worried down to the minute. I wouldn't want to be more than five minutes early. I wouldn't want to be more than five minutes late. But if it was within that, like, 10-minute span, I would probably just go in. The waiting, looking at your watch to time it precisely, that is beyond me. That must be so nice for you. It's a stereotype about German people. It's definitely a stereotype when I went to school in Europe that they would, like, wait outside the place until exactly the time that you were invited to be there and then go up to the door and ring the bell at exactly that minute. So, I mean, the um, the Deutschification of Gundam and specifically Zeon does continue here. Um, Bernie Weissman, Captain Steiner, uh, the guy who gives them their orders is named Commander Killing. Uh, the guy who commands the fleet for this little mock battle is von Helsing. Wow, really? One of his ships is named the Siegfried. I think his ship is named Graf Zeppelin, which was the name of a wow. German aircraft carrier in World War II. Okay. This is a show that is not above uh, leveraging sort of gross ethnic stereotypes in the characterization of these Xeon guys. You look at this team and you've got the chain-smoking by the book captain who appears to be of german descent steiner you've got an alcoholic russian misha mikhail who cleans his nails with a big heckin knife yep and then garcia who is probably hispanic and uh his main character trait so far has been lechery which ain't great and very violent he seemed of the original group the one who most enjoyed fighting and Uh, inflicting horrible violence on his enemies. Yeah. So for all the good that this show does in terms of characterizations, uh, it is definitely also leaning on some lazy stereotypes. The other parallel between Bernie and Al in this episode is over and over again, we see Al playing at being a pilot. He slaps the patch on, he puts on his cap, he pretends his swivel chair is a plane. Uh, I love Uh, the the way he plays, like, pretend mobile suit pilot in his desk. And I'm sure the type of bed that he has gets used in, uh, like, residential settings also when you want to have some extra space and be able to sort of put the bed away during the day. But it feels institutional to me. It feels Mm. like the sort of thing you would have on a ship or <laughs> his um his bed that is like strapped to the wall on a hinge and then drops down mm-hmm. and has a little ladder and a little rail mm-hmm. so that you don't fall out yeah it feels like the kind of a bed you would get on an old ship yeah um which i wonder i assume that's not standard i wonder if this was his parents indulging al's like fascination with warships and stuff I wondered similar. It feels like another part of him playing at mm-hmm, mm-hmm. warfare. And then on the other side, we have Bernie pretending to be a civilian, mm-hmm. playing at being just a commercial pilot. And truck driver. Here are all my papers. Yeah, the um, 
that performance, the acting from Steiner when he comes in. Oh my God. Literally, literally hat in hand begging. Literal sob story. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They actually animate him kind of like wiggling as he does this appeal. He totally invades the personal space of this uh, customs official. Slightly embarrassing, very non-threatening, exactly what you would want if you're trying to get someone to agree to let you do something. Making people slightly uncomfortable is often a great way (laughs) to get uh, them to let you do what you want because they want this interaction with you to be over as quickly as possible. Before we move on from talking about the port, uh, I did wonder what exactly Raya is. Is this colony Raya or? Uh, It's Rhea. 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 And Rhea is another name for side six as Uh a whole. This is a mea culpa for me. I have been saying Raya for years on this podcast. Um, (laughs) So apologies, everyone. It's Rhea. Well, clearly I got it wrong because Tom set me up. I did. Actually, this was all a years-long gambit to try to trick Nina into saying it wrong. I wasn't wrong. I was merely engaged in deceit. Skullduggery. We talked a little bit earlier about why we think Al is so fascinated with the mobile suits. Like, what does he want? What does he get out of his uh, daydreams about them? But I do think there's more to say about Al's character here. In terms of fleshing out what we had seen already, when the principal pulls up her files on him on her computer, almost every class has had his grades declining Mm -hmm. throughout the year. He's just gotten worse and worse. This would normally be a red flag for probably something not even school related, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's the sort of thing that happens to kids who are having troubles at home of some kind or who are being bullied or who have some other issue. His mom also worries when he goes quiet and seems low at dinner that he's being bullied. But as soon as he says it's not that, she stops worrying. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, as long as you're not being bullied, then (laughs) I have nothing to worry about. Well, I think the obvious conclusion to draw from this is it's the, the difficulty between his parents. Right, that his parents' divorce is one of the factors contributing. Right. Or or whatever it is between the two of them. And maybe she isn't willing to recognize that or maybe she does realize that it's affecting him and just can't do anything about it. You know, even if his mother wanted to do everything possible to shield Al from these problems, from her problems, she isn't necessarily able to do that. He also, interestingly, doesn't just lie to his parents. In the first episode, there was very strong, like he just tells them what he thinks they want to hear, vibes, so that he can keep doing what he likes. But it becomes clear in this episode he hasn't told his friends about the Zaku. Mm -hmm. Which they would love. They would be so excited. They would love to see it, and he's kept it from them. And he lies to Chris about what he's doing going out in the middle of the night. He tells her it's a dare with his friends, not that he's just going out by himself. (laughs) I was surprised that the Zaku was still there, uh, though he has a throwaway line about, oh, they took the weapons away. I mean, moving a inert Zaku is probably pretty difficult. And with all of the damage from the battle going on and this other battle right outside, just days later, the local authorities are probably pretty taxed. 
The sort of heavy construction equipment you would need to move a down to Zaku is probably being used to remove those gyms from downtown. I think when Al refuses to tell his friends and lies to Chris, in both instances, he's protecting the secret that Bernie asked him to keep. And I think this reveals a desire on Al's part to be part of something, to be part of this big secret, to be part of this um, larger organization. And this comes through when he sticks the patch on too. He isn't content to just pretend to be a mobile suit pilot. He wants to be part of the army. And maybe we see in that a response to the dissolution of his family unit, feeling like the thing that he is part of is breaking up. He has a craving to be part of something else. It's not clear yet, but it wouldn't surprise me at all to find that part of Al's excitement about the Xeon soldiers returning to the colony, uh, about the mobile suits and piloting, is not simply the power fantasy of being empowered and given additional freedom by the mobile suit, but also the very common in young people desire for excitement. Mm -hmm. I remember being that age and thinking that my everyday life was terribly dull and nothing interesting ever happened and you know reading science fiction or historical fiction or whatever a lot of stories that involve violence and thinking well obviously like a bunch of this stuff is really horrible but doesn't it also sound really exciting mm -hmm. <laughs> i think that is a, a very normal reaction for a young person who has grown up in prosperity, right? Mm -hmm. They haven't lived the realities of that. And so it just seems like something out of a story, something out of a video game. I think the show does a great job of contrasting the way the kids feel about the attack, the violence, with the way the adults feel about it. Al returns from his first meeting with Bernie and he finds the city in ruins. He finds people gawking. There are dead bodies in the streets people in shock and we get scene after scene of destruction of this modern recognizable city you know anybody living in the 80s would have been able to look at that city and seen basically their own city but then we get the kids in school and they're all talking excitedly about it and when one kid comes in to say they've canceled school everybody loses their minds they're so excited it's the best thing that's ever happened i realized watching that scene I got a very odd sense of deja vu from it, which is because I was Al's age or maybe a year younger in Jakarta, Indonesia in, when was that, 97 or 98? Basically, there was massive civil unrest in the city. Most foreign companies uh, and embassies organized like evacuations of Jakarta for their staff, employees, citizens. And so I went to school on a Wednesday or a Thursday. School ended early and they did staggered release based on how safely your bus could get home. <laughs> then later that day, they told us school was canceled for the rest of the week. And the next day they told us school was canceled for the year. And I was turning cartwheels <laughs> in my house. I was so excited to be off school early and on summer break early. The connection to the violence or what that violence meant for other people just did not register with me at all. So yeah, that's <laughs> accurate. <laughs> yeah, I really didn't 
feel an inkling of the danger until we got to the airport, which is funny because we absolutely saw tanks in the street on the way to the airport. But then we got to the airport and there were a ton of people just sleeping there waiting for flights, just like on the ground uh, with, you know, whatever of their stuff they could carry. And that was the first point in all of this at which I was like, oh, the other thing that kids don't realize is a lot of these situations involve lots and lots of waiting around. The other thing that kids often don't realize is that bad things don't just happen to other people. The bad things in the stories can happen to you or the people you know. And now Tom's research on the books Chris drops in episode one. Back in episode one, at around the 14 minute mark, Al bumps into his neighbor, Chris McKenzie, as she is carrying a stack of boxes and books from her car to her house. Startled, she drops her burden. And a few cuts later, at the 15 minute mark, we get a shot of several of the books as rain begins to fall on our characters. One book falls with its front cover up and visible. A second falls splayed out, some interior text legible. If, like me, you took a moment to freeze frame and look at those books, you would see that the closed one is titled Frank Kelly Freeze, The Art of Science Fiction. The name Frank Kelly Freeze is in handwritten script. The Art of Science Fiction is printed in all capital letters below. The one that has fallen open only shows a chapter heading, off and running, or vice versa. The word off is written in all capital letters, and there is a hyphen between the words running and or. Below, the first letter of the following paragraph is enlarged enough to be identified as a capital T. There are two columns of text in the top half of the page, then in the bottom half there is one column of text on the left, an illustration on the right, and some more text below the illustration. It may seem as though I am describing this shot in unnecessary detail especially considering that it is on screen twice for roughly two seconds total. But you have probably already figured out where I'm going with this, because those are real books. Or rather, they are two copies of the same real book, a copy of which I was able to obtain for this research piece. Frank Kelly Fries, better known as Kelly Fries, was an enormously prolific science fiction artist and illustrator who left his indelible stamp on the look and feel of science fiction from 1950 until 2004. In that period, he won 11 Hugo Awards for Best Artist, including the inaugural award in 1955, the second most wins of any artist, and he was nominated for the award 28 times, the most nominations received by any artist. In his most successful period, between 1955 and 1976, the award was given out 21 times. Freeze was nominated 17 times and won 10 times. You have almost certainly seen some of his work. The one that I'm most familiar with was the cover for Astounding Science Fiction in October 1953. It shows a silvery robot with a human-shaped face and all-too-human eyes, seeming to plead not with the viewer, but with some other presence beyond the frame of the painting. In the robot's giant hand, there is a wounded or killed human man, blood staining his jacket. The same blood covers the tip of one of the robot's fingers. And Fries created a revised version of this painting 
for the cover of Queen's album News of the World in 1977. If you happened to read any of the 58 pulp sci-fi books published by famed romance novel publisher Harlequin under their laser imprint in the mid-70s, you would have seen Freeze's work on the cover. You may have seen some of the Mad Magazine covers that Freeze painted between 1958 and 1962. Star Trek fans might be familiar with the gorgeous portraits he painted of the original crew of the Enterprise. His artwork wound up on the covers of GURPS role-playing game manuals in the 80s, on the NASA Skylab patch, and on posters that Freeze made, essentially on his own initiative, to rally flagging enthusiasm for the space program. Besides science fiction and space art, he also did religious paintings for the Franciscan Order, advertising art, and art to decorate the sides of slot machines. During World War II, he was a reconnaissance photographer with the U.S. Army Air Forces in the South Pacific, and painted some of the illustrations on the noses of U.S. bombers. In 1977, he wrote and published The Art of Science Fiction as a collection of his work, along with anecdotes about his career how he broke into science fiction illustration, how he got along with the influential magazine editor John W. Campbell, which of the pieces were his favorite, and how sad he was, in some cases, to have sold the originals. Alongside each illustration in the book, he includes handwritten notes about his process, focusing sometimes on how he conceived of a particular piece, sometimes on the specific techniques used to realize it. With the book itself physically in front of me, I can confirm that whoever was responsible for drawing this scene in the show must have had the same book in front of them when they did so. There are differences. The color of the cover is somewhat different, a block of yellow background has been added around where the book's name is written, and the real-world version has an illustration of a keyhole and a goblin that have not been reproduced in the show. But on the other hand... The book benefits from a charming introduction by one of Freeze's friends and clients, the sci-fi author Isaac Asimov. This fact is noted on the cover, in the lower left, and although it is difficult to make out because of the shading, the exact same is written on the cover of the version that appears in War in the Pocket. Speaking of that cover, on both the real book and the one Chris dropped, the artist's name appears handwritten. On the real book, it's actually Kelly Freeze's own handwriting and the one on the Universal Century reproduction is a shockingly close recreation of that same handwriting. In fact, the addition of the yellow block makes the name of the book stand out more in animation than it does in life, seeming to suggest that the animator wanted the eagle-eyed viewer, now equipped with a pause button, to be able to make out this reference. As for the book that has fallen open, the one that says, off and running or vice versa at the top? Well, that's page 20 of the real book, the first chapter after the introduction. The layout of the real page is an almost exact match, down to the position and shape of the illustration and the enlarged T at the start of the first column of text. In the show, the text has been reduced to scribbles and the illustration is just a gray box, but in the real book, it's a black-and-white illustration originally made for the story The Artist and the Door by Dorothy Quick. The text is a actually quite funny story about how Freeze kept running into this one art director who had somehow pigeonholed him as a fantasy artist, and no collection of Hugo Awards for science fiction illustration would convince this, quote, small, rather furry man with a tendency to mutter to himself, 
otherwise. Having now positively identified the book in question, we might ask, why does Secret Federation pilot Chris McKenzie have two copies of Frank Kelly Free's The Art of Science Fiction? Within the realm of the story, I think we can assume that Chris is just a huge fan of classic Golden Age science fiction. In the real world, the simple and probably correct answer is that whoever drew this cut needed books to use as references for the scene. They owned a copy of this book, probably because they too admired Freeze as an illustrator, and so used it for reference when drawing the scene. I say whoever because as far as I've been able to tell, the animator responsible for this scene remains unknown. As Matteo of Animetudes pointed out when I asked about it, the movement of the characters is not particularly distinctive, and the faces all look like they've been heavily corrected, probably by animation director Saito Itaru, leaving little in the way of a distinctive, identifiable style. Could there be more to this reference, though? I was hoping that I would find in Freeze's book some hint of a stylistic influence on 0080, and I'm not sure that I did. There is, in Freeze's depictions of older men, an emphasis on detail, on complex patterns of wrinkles and scars, on starkly shaded facial structures, and there may be some influence from that visible in the way that Steiner, Misha, Garcia, and Andy are drawn. On a more conceptual level, one of the best pieces in the book is the illustration for Clifford Simak's 1954 story, Immigrant. We see a grassy plain stretching away toward the horizon, with a silver rocket ship in the distance pointing up towards a shining star. Macroscopic in the foreground, there are discarded emblems of childhood. An alphabet block, a toy six-shooter, a football, one of those horseshoe-shaped magnets. The painting tells a story about growing up in the space age, expressed solely through the ephemera of a child's play. 0080's opening tells much the same story, with its sequence of childhood toys. Alphabet blocks, toy robot, tricycle. Thus also the eye catch, the soldier's helmet used for dress-up play, the back pocket with Swiss army knife, toy rocket ship, and actual magazine with visible bullets. Perhaps Freeze's illustrations did inspire 0080's creators, at least a little bit, or perhaps it was just a coincidence. Perhaps the inclusion of this book was simply an homage to a prolific and influential illustrator whose work set alight the imaginations of sci-fi fans around the world, including, probably, those kids who would grow up to make War in the Pocket. Or perhaps it was one of the only English-language books on hand for the animator charged with making this scene. Who knows? Freeze himself complains repeatedly throughout his book about the difficulty of finding good references for sci-fi illustration. He includes anecdotes about having to draft neighbors, friends, even his auto mechanic to serve as models, or about the time that he had to hire a photo studio and nude model to get references for the Heinlein story Door into Summer, and how he ended up spending more on the references than he was paid for the art. In fact, in what I think must be a coincidence, but is a truly delightful one, the last illustration in The Art of Science Fiction is of a pile of books scattered on the ground. The books in the pile are, of course, all modeled on real books that Freeze happened to have in his personal library.
And now Nina's research on consumer electronics in 0080. From the first episode of War in the Pocket, the presence of home electronics was striking. And we discussed last episode our impressions of Al's family's affluence based largely on that presence. The TV and video game console in his room, the camcorder he carries around. But this week, I wanted to dig into the facts behind that impression. How common was it for kids in Japan to have their own TV sets in the 1970s and 80s? What about home video game systems? When was the first light gun controller released? And what were camcorders like at that time? And whether Al is typical or not, what does that tell us about this story? As we've touched on at various points, the period of post-war recovery through the bursting of the asset bubble was one of increasing prosperity in Japan. And perhaps nowhere is that more evident than in the increased spending on entertainment. Uh, To quote one source, from 1966 to 1994, sales of toys and entertainment equipment rose, in real terms, 10.7 times. In the mid to late 80s, different sources put the rate of household color TV ownership at 82.4 to 99.2%. I wasn't able to find statistics for the late 1980s specifically, but by 1995, 69% of children aged 9 to 14 owned video game consoles. 60% owned radio cassette or stereo players. 52% had their own rooms. 19% had their own TV sets and 12% had their own video players. In the 15 to 23-year-old group, 87% had their own radio cassette or stereo players. 80% had their own rooms. 50% had their own TV sets. And 41% had their own video cassette recorders. In the first episode, we learn that Al is in the final year of elementary school. That makes him the equivalent of a United States sixth grader. So he's probably 11 or 12 years old. They actually say his age on screen when he goes to the spaceport and gets checked in. They say Alfred Izuhara, age 11. I had forgotten that bit. Just remembered him talking to Chris about Mm -hmm. being at the end of elementary school. But that makes his living situation unusual for his age, but not extraordinary. You know, assuming a representative sample, about half of his classmates would have their own room and about one in six would have their own television. On the video game side of things, it turns out that light guns, like the one Al uses for that monster invasion shooter game, are actually very old. They date from the 1930s. These early light guns only worked with CRT, or cathode ray tube, televisions. And the first use in gaming was for an arcade shooter called Seberg Rayolite that came out in 1936. The first light gun for a home video game console was for the Magnavox Odyssey, used in a game called Shooting Gallery, and it was shaped like a rifle rather than like a handgun. Bandai even designed and released their own light gun called the Hypershot, which looked like a machine gun and had a built-in speaker, vibration feedback, and a directional pad. But the most popular example was the Nintendo NES Zapper, or the Video Shooting Series Light Gun, released in 1984, and the most popular game to utilize the light gun controller was Duck Hunt, also released in 1984. I was born after that release, but have fond memories of playing Duck Hunt with my uncles and older cousins. I'm not going to say when I was born. You don't (laughs) need to know that. It's just after Duck Hunt. (laughs) Keep it secret. Keep it safe. 
The Japanese release of the Nintendo light gun was designed to look like a revolver, albeit an all-black plastic one, while the U.S. release was designed to look like a sci-fi ray gun and was originally made of the same colors of plastic as the console, then re-released in a light gray and bright orange version. We didn't dig very deeply into this, but the design of the light gun that Al plays with looks a bit like a mashup between the U.S. version of the NES Zapper and an M16. Al's light gun also has a scope, which was not a feature of that era of Nintendo light guns. However, the now-defunct Bondwell company did release a deluxe sighting scope snap-on accessory. Of course, Al would have the deluxe upgrade package. A quick aside that while we were looking at screenshots of Al's light gun, Tom realized that the poster on the back of Al's door is a reference to Dragon Slayer. And a quick search of reference pictures reveals that the poster probably refers to the Dragon Slayer cartoon, originally released in 1984, rather than the arcade game, which came out in 1983. Uh, and while we could not find any evidence that the cartoon had been released in Japan, it was created by Ruby Spears Productions, which was a spin-off studio from Hanna-Barbera, and we know that Hanna-Barbera cartoons were being released in Japan. So, there's every likelihood. It's also entirely possible that it was partly animated in Japan. Records for those kinds of things are difficult to find, and we were not able to find any for this one one way or the other. Al's camcorder might be the most unusual of his personal electronics. The first consumer camcorder, short for camera recorder, was the Sony Betamovie BMC100P and wasn't released until 1983. The first professional camcorder was released that same year, also by Sony. Prior to these releases, cameras had to be connected to a separate external recording device. And the earliest camcorders, despite being very portable, were, by today's standards, quite large and clunky, and with few of the features we take for granted now. The Sony Betamovie, which recorded to the Betamax tape format, had to rest on the operator's shoulder and had no playback functionality. Over the next few years, JVC, Panasonic, RCA, and Hitachi all released consumer camcorders, most recording to full-size VHS tapes. Kodak and Sony also had 8mm cassette formats. Sony's was called Video 8, and the upgraded version was called Hi 8. The smaller tapes allowed for smaller, lighter camcorders, and Al's camera bears some resemblance to the Sony Hi 8 Handycam, released in 1989. But Al's is tapeless. It records onto a piece of storage media that seems a little antiquated to us now, what appears to be a three and a half inch floppy disk, which in the late 80s had only recently displaced the five and a quarter inch version as the more common external data storage. And a lot of computers at that time had drives for both sizes. In 1988 and 89, the only digital recording was done for broadcast. The Sony D1, which recorded uncompressed audio and video. And the system was not portable by any stretch of the imagination. Instead, this aspect of Al's camcorder was probably inspired by the, at that time, state-of-the-art digital still cameras. For instance, the Sony Mavica. Technically a still video recorder, it was released in 1981 and recorded to two-inch removable magnetic discs, very reminiscent of floppies and called 
Video floppies. <laughs> Still video feels like an oxymoron, but it means, quote, an electronic camera that takes still images and stores them as single frames of video. They're considered predecessors of digital cameras and peaked in popularity in, you guessed it, the late 1980s. And video floppy storage wasn't confined to the Mavica. Many different still video cameras used the same storage medium. And when I looked for cameras with similar aesthetic design and shape to the one that Al uses, I found models by Olympus, Canon, and Sony, all released in 1987 and 88. The LCD view screen, another feature of Al's camcorder, was still years away, as the first LCD view screen on a commercial camcorder wouldn't appear until 1992, and as a viewfinder on a digital camera, not until 1995. And all consumer camcorders were, in the 1980s, still very expensive tech. Thinking about Al's room and his things also made me think about Al as an only child. Between 1975 and 1980, the average number of births per woman dropped below two, for the first time since the statistics were recorded, and has never risen above it since. As with having his own room and his own television set, this means that Al would have been somewhat unusual for being an only child, but not extremely so. In a way, we can think of Al as being slightly ahead of, or on the cutting edge of, trends that were already being observed in Japan in the late 1980s. You mentioned the expense of that camera, and I had a, a reaction. I didn't talk about it during the talkback, but when Al swaps his super expensive video camera for Bernie's like magnet stick-on rank pin, I had this immediate reaction of like, oh, kid, you don't realize the value of what you're trading away, which is just like classic kids. Absolutely. And of course, a real actual Xeon rank pin has enormous value to Al that the mere dollars and cents could never equal. I guess in side six, they're using cools. My instinct is also to assume that it's not technically his camera, that it's actually his father's that was left behind in the separation. And so he's not as invested in the value of it as he would be if it were his. And there's no adult in his life who really cares what happens to it and <laughs> to try to like instill in him any protectiveness of the technology or any special care. Or alternatively, he is just very accustomed to getting, you know, whatever material things that he wants. His own TV, his own video game system, the light gun with the deluxe upgrade. Yeah, one source I consulted for the TV portion of this research made me realize that the material conditions of Al's life the house, the expensive electronics, aren't just markers of affluence, but also of a certain atomization in Japanese society at that time. The privatization of things that used to be communal or institutional. As electronics became smaller and less expensive, they transitioned away from communal or institutional use and toward private, single-family household, or even individual use. And television is a great example. In the early days of TV in Japan, there was gaito terebi, street TV. Televisions were set up in communal spaces like hospitals or community centers, or literally in the street. This was to familiarize people with the technology and to encourage them to buy their own television sets, but also created a festival-like atmosphere as huge crowds would gather for must-see events. For example, 
Many Ricky Dozan wrestling matches were shown this way. It's TV watching as a public community event. Then there's the era of a single radio or TV set in the home, shared by the whole family in a common area of the house for reasons of both size and expense, followed by different rooms having their own devices so that different family members can listen to or watch what they like and with greater privacy. In Japan, from the 1960s through the 1990s, the amount of content produced across most types of media, TV and radio programming, book and comics publishing, increased substantially. Yet the number of movie theaters, movie ticket sales, and the number of films produced all declined. The number of video rental stores shot up. People were engaging with more entertainment at home and less in public venues. And this atomization is reflected not just in entertainment, but in certain broader social trends. By chance, I read a section of John McCreary's Japanese Consumer Behavior, in which an older Japanese person is being interviewed and theorizes that in the past, the goals of the state, the community, the family, and the individual used to be substantially the same, which created a sense of security and even contentment and was at least simpler. As the connection between these levels became more tenuous, as society became more fragmented, it fueled a sense of alienation and a certain amount of angst. Suddenly, you needed to know what your personal goals were. That angst affected the old as well as the young, but there was considerable hand-wringing about how it manifested in young people. Some academics and older Japanese people identified a sort of generational listlessness among young adults at that time that some of them attributed to overprotection, a lack of experience of hardship. Even while young people clearly articulated a sense that most of the work available to them had no security, no pension, no reward for hard work or strong performance, and was largely meaningless, of little real use or benefit to anyone. That sounds kind of familiar. Hmm. I feel like I've heard something like this before. Recently. <laughs> hmm. And then there's Al. He has friends, but feels solitary, even lonely. He's too young to be thinking about a job, per se, but clearly lacks motivation to do what's expected of him. This is a kid with no idea what it's all for. War in the Pocket is clearly concerned with portraying and meditating on social trends of the time. Not just privatization and fragmentation in society, or shrinking family sizes, or the lack of motivation among young people, but also divorce and separation, the competitive academic landscape and the way it increased stress for children, and the more hands-off, leave-it-to-the-professionals style of parenting. But what feels remarkable is they take the child's perspective. We watch Al and we worry about him, just as adults worried about kids growing up in the comfortable malaise of the 80s, we also understand him because of the care taken to convey his thoughts and feelings. As former children, we can relate. Next time on episode 5.4, Child and Soldier, we research and discuss episode 3 of War in the Pocket and... We want to protect kids, not listen to them. 
Crying Wolf. Mobile Suit Montage. Sneak, sneak, sneak. Beat Cute. Kids Say the Darndest Things. Pimpon. Beer Brand Beer and Ice Brand Ice. And Forget Dangar. Now we're all about Dangre. Can't you see that you are sweet? Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Pieces of Life by Analog by Nature. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. With the Omicron variant of COVID-19 currently surging in New York and around the world, I cannot in good conscience encourage you to share your wrong Gundam opinions not even on deserted street corners. So stay home and mutter your wrong Gundam opinions to yourself or your most patient roommate, family member, pet, gunpla model, or kitchen appliance. Maybe something like, Al wasn't just doodling some Zaku with a Gundam shield. He was designing the Zaku 2 Kai AL full shield variant, coming soon exclusively from P. Bandai. We won't hear you, but that's for the best, don't you think? How can I say this without being weird? (laughs) Um, As a fan, one of the things that services me is... (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can say your favorite kind of fan service. The Xeon soldiers are back. Yippee! <laughs> Woohoo! As yet un- <laughs> and the beep Gundam. Now that we've talked about this short teaser for about ten times the length of the teaser itself. I totally forgot the third interesting thing about this, which is that footage of the original Gundam launching is going to get trotted out periodically when people argue for a remake of the original first Gundam with modern animation. They're going to say, look, it could look like this. You know how I feel about remakes. We've had that conversation. And the robots, robots. Clever girl. (laughs) That just makes it sound like I'm going to murder you. Like a velociraptor. Not me. Other people. My velociraptor girlfriend poses no threat to me. (laughs) Um. (laughs) (laughs) We've gotten somewhat off track. It's okay. I think there might be a brief research piece in why they would call it that. 
or we could just talk about it. I feel like it's pretty well known. <laughs> I mean, on a much smaller and entirely less relevant scale, uh, I always got excited by snow days. <laughs> and had no consideration for the people who had to go to work or plow the streets or shovel the driveway. Your story is better, though. I love the little motorized desk that the guy at the port has. <laughs> I want one of those to zip around with my computer. <laughs> and a pair of aviators that nobody can see through but me. Just intimidating the heck out of people. <laughs> you know, we could just get you a Segway and, uh, and an iPad. There's a fantastic little detail in the scene where Killing is giving them their orders when Garcia, like in a tense moment, adjusts and accidentally and kicks, the, kicks table. the table. I thought <laughs> or he intentionally, just I, to... Yeah. I thought it was on purpose. He gives me that vibe. It was one of those on purpose accidental things. And then he's just like, it's right. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Can't believe that dude's name is Killing. Gundam may be confusing, but it's not subtle. 